Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Of course, it's Mornings Without Carmen this morning. I'm Peter Kapsner, filling in for today on the 14th of February. Carmen is taking an extended uh, weekend back from her mountain cabin. She'll be back in this host chair tomorrow morning. I always love starting the day with you as fellow believers. We fix our eyes on Jesus together, regardless of the circumstances of the day. And some of you undoubtedly are living within some really wonderful kinds of circumstances. Others, I'm sure, less so. But God's faithfulness as a shepherd is not revealed by the circumstances of our life. It is revealed that he walks with us through whatever circumstances in which we find ourselves. And he will do that again today as we fix our eyes together. I'd love to be joined in studio by Paul Perot. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. So did you watch the Super Bowl yesterday? It's kind of, there was a lot of people watching this yesterday. It was in the definitely in our cultural zeitgeist. Football yeah. is kind of back front and center over the these last few weeks. It is. And I only watched, let's see, probably most of the third quarter and the start of the fourth. I was otherwise occupied and tried to get to bed. After all, I get up early. But uh, wow. I mean, it was an evenly, there's one of those Super Bowls where there's not a blowout. These were two evenly matched teams, both performing unbelievably well and everything. Of course, seeing all those sacks in this one, that one yeah. really shocked me. Both sides, yep. both quarterbacks getting sacked quite a few times. No, I sure wish I was uh, in the city of Cincinnati today, even though they're, I'm sure, grieving after a, a pretty razor-thin loss that they experienced late in that game. But they gave the children off of school today, independent of whatever happened in that they Super Bowl last night. They were it was hopeful. great. I'm sure the city would have been turned upside down, but that was great. And I thought it was interesting. I don't know you, what your observations were, Paul, but I found myself driving in to studio this morning thinking, oh gosh, I just watched a, a sporting event with 70 some thousand people in this gigantic stadium. And it was the first time that I watched an event and I wasn't actually thinking about COVID. And it doesn't mean that I should or should not be thinking about COVID. I just noticed, and I'm coming off of COVID. It's part of why yeah. I wasn't on the show with you all last week. It's the second go around with it for me. So it's certainly in my own mind. And yet I know it's had such a tremendous impact and and a terrible impact on so many people globally. And yet this was maybe the first time that I can remember. And I thought, oh, this feels I'm not even sure what normal is supposed to feel like. Right. Okay, so let's be clear. (laughs) I don't have a baseline of normal. I I do. But it still was so much in our thinking. I mean, Delta and and, and it's just been around and and it's going to continue to be around. And I'm sure there'll be other variants. But the point being is that we had a few people over and Mm -hmm. we had some pizza and it just felt somewhat of return to normalcy. And that just felt peaceful last night. Yeah, it did have that feel to it because, again, like I said, you think about last year. If I remember last year, no fans in right. the stadium. It was weird. Yeah, the whole to thing To watch was very weird. a game. I mean, yeah, they had the canned stuff, but 
uh, applause, but no, it wasn't the same. Yeah. And this this was, a, yeah, definitely a return to normalcy. Indeed. And one more piece that we noticed from last night, and this is where a lot of my young people, and I, I teach in the Christian Ministries program here at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, and, and so we talk a lot about social ethics issues. And one of the primary issues of the day for them is what does what is the world going to look like from a, from a climate sustainability pollution kind of standpoint? I think every automobile commercial last night, every single one of them was highlighting a move into the electric industry. I just mm-hmm. found that really, because the, the commercials are always so fun, or many of them yeah. could be very, very fun. But I just thought, wow, what an interesting future ahead. And it just reminds me again, I was watching it with some young people last night. Their world is very different than our world. Mm-hmm. I'm actually looking at that and going, okay. Most of them were. There were some other ones that were not, especially right. in the second half, my, my understanding. Uh, but yeah, EV was definitely the thing last night and i'm still kind of going okay do we have the infrastructure to handle all those ev vehicles yeah indeed and well we'll find out but again the the world looks much different one of the ways it looks different and we're going to talk about that with uh, sarah zylstra from the gospel coalition coming up in just a moment is that a religious kind of society is on the decline and a Mm -hmm. lot of us wring our hands over that understandably so but our first story that we're going to chat with with sarah this morning is about uh, the first atheistic society and how Christianity really tended to grow and blossom in that context. So looking forward to that conversation. So glad to be with all of you here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today. About 10 and a half minutes past the top of the hour. Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge this morning. Delighted to be joined by Sarah Zylstra this morning of the Gospel Coalition. We'll talk about some of the headlines that are relevant globally on behalf of Christianity. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Great to hear your voice. Did you uh, catch any of the Super Bowl yesterday? I caught the first half and then I had to put my son to bed. So, um, but it's lovely to see a game where, the, I, you know, you're talking about the teams being evenly matched. Yeah. Um, that's just fun. Yeah. Well, as a mom, Sarah, and we're going to talk about this a bit in terms of the future of Christianity in our country. We've already got some text coming in about all of that. And we'd love to hear from you this morning as you're listening at 877-933-2484. You can text in any comment or question. We'll t- definitely take those this morning. But Sarah, as a mother, how many children do you have? I have two boys. You have two boys. And do you, there is a lot of hand-wringing these days, again, understandably so, about what the future of Christian expression looks like in our country because there are fewer and fewer people attending traditionally institutionalized kinds of church environments. Do you fret over that a bit as a mother? Do you see some of the same things? I mean, I just pray over them continually. It certainly has affected um, some of our educational choices. Uh, we're realizing the public school is not as friendly to Christianity mm. as it was. You know, it's not the same as our public schools when we, when we were growing up. So just kind of being cognizant of that as we're raising them, like the culture we're raising them in, you can assume it was, the, you know, you can like, oh, that was what it was like when I was a kid, but it's not. Um, so we're just trying to be, we're not, not afraid, but just aware of it. Um, 
Yeah, no, I think the the speed with which the the system has changed, and I was educated uh, in my undergraduate degree as a, a, a public educator. My wife, Hallie, spent a number of years in the system, and things really are different. There tended to be a little bit more of a partnership and more of a village kind of mentality. This was pre-technology and pre-sort of mass mobility, and so you, you knew your teachers a little bit better, and there was a, a little bit of more of a coalition between them, but things really have shifted over these last maybe 10, 15 years. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, of course, another whole um, issue is, was the uh, staying out of school for COVID and the masking and the um, teachers fightings. I live in Chicago. Um, so our teachers union is uh, the, the Chicago public school teachers, maybe you've heard, are, are fighting pretty hard to keep the things as locked down as possible, which, of course, uh, we, we won't see the effect of that for years and years yet, I don't think. Yeah, agreed. Well, Steve wrote in this morning and was talking a bit about the fact that conversations on Christianity in our country are getting a little bit more difficult as we go along. And you and I are going to talk a bit about the first atheistic nation, at least the one that was labeled itself that way coming out of Europe. Tell us a little bit about Albania and what we're seeing there. Yeah, this is so interesting. Um, so probably in the 90s, I don't know if you're, if any listeners will remember this, but Albania opened up and it used to be that there were, now we have North Korea that's kind of, wow, that country is really sealed in from influence from any, everybody. It used to be there was three of those after the Second World War. One was North Korea, of course, one was Mongolia, and the third one was Albania. So um, Albania pretty much closed down. They had a dictator come to rule after World War II, and they pretty much closed everything down and just got tighter and tighter. Um, you know, first, they wouldn't let any um, of the like the Western influences in. They really wanted to seal themselves off against all the countries that were around them to make sure they didn't influence them. And then eventually they would even seal themselves off from, um, they were communists. So originally they were kind of supported by the Soviet Union, but even sealed themselves off against that. So really were kind of their own little island. Um, and then at some point along the way in 1967, declared themselves to be atheistic. They were the first country to do that, which meant um, not just kind of agnostic, like, okay, well, you know, we're not going to be Christian, but you can believe what you want. But really, um, you may not say you're a Christian or a Muslim, but neither may you believe it. Um, and if we see you making the sign of the cross or owning a Bible, you'll be put in jail. Yeah. And so what, what began to shift? And, and I know there's not a huge shift, but we're talking about uh, the Joshua Project, and, and we see that uh, Christianity, as it's wont to do, Sarah, it doesn't necessarily go away. I mean, Jesus says kingdom is the only kingdom that will remain, and, and it does continue to find space in people's hearts and minds. So going from this place of pretty profound atheism to maybe some rays of hope, what are we seeing right now? Yeah, this is just fascinating to me. So for 50 years, no one could believe anything. I mean, this is a generation, right? Like you're, you could be 50 years old and have never had, you know, th these were, were um, adults and teenagers who didn't know what their family religion was. Um, maybe your grandma could remember going to the mosque or to, to a, you know, church somewhere, but nobody else could even remember it. So you would think that would totally wipe out the desire for religion. If you were a secular person, that would logically make sense if you were going to knock religion all the way out of a society. In fact, I was talking with a gentleman named Don Mansfield. He was the crew director for, for Albania, had never been there, of course, back in the 90s. And he said, I can remember sitting in a room with all these foreign um, mission agencies. Everybody was hoping to somehow have an influence in Albania. Nobody could get in. And I said, well, what percentage of the population do we think are Christian? 
And instead of telling them a population percentage, they would say like, oh, do you know Christopher? Or like, do you know Maria? He's like, I was scribbling down names and we got to 16 names and nobody could think of any other known Christians in the country. Like wow. that's where they were at, 16. Well, today there are 17,000 because you're right. The word of God will get in there. Um, part of that help, most of it, the vast majority open, happened when the country itself opened politically in the early 90s. But there are some fun stories from even before that. There were some American GIs who flew over after the war and they would tie Bibles to little parachutes and drop them out over the country. And one gentleman who came, who he, um, a guy I talked to knew him. He's like, a guy came up to me and said, I got this gospel of Mark that just dropped down. Or um, Operation Mobilization, they, would, they had this giant ship. They have these ships, you know, and they parked out in international waters. They had these Bibles that were translated into Albanian and they put each one in a like a gallon Ziploc bag, blow it up so it would float, zip it shut. And then they would wait. The captain told them when the tide was right and they would drop in these Bibles and they're just praying that somehow like a letter in a bottle, these Bibles would float into the shore. And <laughs> if you're like me, you're thinking there's no way those Bibles, they're 12 miles out or something. There's just no way, but they did. And they had, there are several stories that I heard of people who would be like, what is this as it, as it washes up onto the sand and read the Bible and became interested in it that way. Sarah, that's an incredible story. It's a great story. Yeah, I love yeah. it. We're talking, uh, talking with Sarah Zylstra this morning from Gospel Coalition about the atheism going on in Albania, but how the Word of God manages to make its way there. And Sarah, when I think about the future then in our own country as well, if we do become a bit more atheistic, agnostic for sure, uh, potentially atheistic, mm -hmm. it does give us the opportunity as believers to creatively partner with God in sharing the good news this way. Th these are stories I've always heard that have happened elsewhere, but I can't imagine being able to participate like this instead of maybe trying to market people into the kingdom or something along those lines we get a chance to participate this way you know what and i'll tell you something else that's really encouraging to me um after so this whole nobody knows what their religion is everybody has been religion free for 50 years and they um open this place back up and say okay you can be religious if, if you want and i can't remember what it was but i think it was within 10 years like 99 percent of their population had reclaimed a religion mm. Most of them, almost all of them, except for this vast growth of Christians, almost all of them went back to what they were before. So like if your grandma was Muslim and that was 70% of the country before, that's where they are again now, which is just remarkable to me, like the hunger in a human soul for religion and for meaning and purpose, you just, it's like, you can't knock that out, you know? So they're looking, even if they're kind of stumbling into the wrong religion, people have that, that's real, that God shaped hole in your soul that's mm. looking for something. Um, and so I honestly think, you know, the number of true atheists and agnostics in the United States is only about 6%. And there's every, all those nuns are saying nothing in particular, but if you ask them if they believe in God or if they consider themselves spiritual, they still do. So I think people are still looking and there's still, you know, openness to conversations about purpose and things of the Lord. Mm, I love it. Well, we'd love to hear from you this morning, too. We're going to step away for just a moment. But if you have a question for Sarah and for me this morning about any of the topics with which we are in conversation, you can text us at 877-933-2484. See some more texts coming in. We'll get to those when we come back after a short break.
Welcome back to Mornings Without Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for this morning. We're chatting with Sarah Zylstra, the Gospel Coalition, about some of the headlines globally. And Sarah, before the break, we were talking a bit about the country of Albania. And Jim wrote in this morning and reminded us that Mother Teresa apparently has some Albanian in her background. I mean... That's amazing, isn't it? It is. Yeah, our listeners, they, they know their stuff. I love it when they text in. And again, if you have mm-hmm. a question or a comment for us this morning, 877-933-2484. We'd love to hear from you. Sarah, another topic that is uh, part of what we'll talk about this morning has to do with the refugee crisis that is going on globally, but certainly is impacting us here in the United States of America. And there is obviously quite a bit of tension in this conversation in terms of what to do with the southern border and people coming through. And I think what we have to be careful of is is never to go so polarized where we throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. And, and don't even though there is trafficking, even though there is all the illegal immigration that's happening, and that is very real and we need to talk about, there are also people that are genuine refugees coming from war-torn countries or from very difficult circumstances. And church is doing some unusual ministry in the midst of this refugee crisis. Tell us about it. Yeah. You know, and to remember that a lot of those are Christians that are fleeing from persecution. Right. Um, So, and they need our help. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So there's a church. This is so fun. There's a church in Alexandria, which is just right outside of Washington, DC. And the most interesting thing to me about Alexandria is the breakup of it. It is about half white, maybe, and then just really multi-ethnic. Well, that's exactly what the United States population is is predicted to be in 2045. It's almost an exact match. And so it's so interesting to look at them and think like, okay, if this is what everybody is going to look like in 20 years, what are they doing that we can do too? So there's a church called Alexandria Presbyterian Church. And they first, um, they, they started an immigration ministry sort of by accident. One of their members was an attorney and he was doing some pro bono work with immigration and ran across a refugee from, from Burundi in Africa, um, who was, uh, legitimately, you know, had been persecuted and became friends with him. Young guy, just a 20 year old guy, the church just embraced him. I mean, it was just one guy They didn't have a ministry. So they were like, anybody have a room for him? Anybody have an extra car he could use? Anybody have a job that he could do? Could anybody, you know, do some translation work? And just within the body of Christ, we're able to care for him so well He came to know the Lord, um, went to school, just had his first baby a little while ago. I think he moved to Minneapolis Mm -hmm. and um, just a story of someone coming to faith. And then like kind of through him, once you get plugged into a community, you know, then somebody else knows somebody else needs help. And eventually they were just helping more and more and more people. Um, Not always. Uh, people who told the truth, right? Like sometimes after a while, they'd be like, why are we paying your rent? And you're wearing nicer looking clothes than we are kind of feeling. (laughs) Um, So once in a while, but they're like, you know, we just always um, started with an open hand. And so they have just um, been able to minister to lots and lots of people. And then now they have this really interesting church plant coming out of them um, by one of their pastors was called Chris Six. And he was like, I just want to have a church that is so truly multi-ethnic that everybody would feel comfortable here. So he's starting this little tiny church plant with people from all over the world without a, a majority race. And that has been, um, when they sing, it's so beautiful that his wife cries. 
I, and I think when I hear that kind of story, Sarah, I think back when I had a chance to do some work overseas and I, and I sat with a young man from South Korea who was also a believer. He couldn't speak English. I couldn't speak South Korean. And yet there was a synergy of heart uh, that mm. was between us that was just so obvious as we tried in these limited ways to communicate with one another. So when you talk about the multi-ethnic church of the future, uh, it isn't necessarily that we're attempting to celebrate just multi-ethnicity on mm-hmm. its own terms, but we have an opportunity as believers to live in multi multi-ethnic relationships bonded together by something deeper than race? Oh, 100%. 100%. If you were trying to just have a multi-ethnic church um, and that sort of became your idol, that would never, never work. We know it wouldn't. Um, but if you are so focused on the gospel of Jesus and you go so slow because another thing you need is to build a lot of trust, which is extremely difficult to do when it's hard to understand each other, when English is everybody's second language. Um, so to go very slow, um, to trust the spirit and to just keep putting the gospel back in the center, like this is what we agree on. This is what we agree on. This is what we agree on. Um, this is what we're trying to live by. This is what we preach to ourselves every day. That's what's going to build you a beautiful church. Mm, Sarah, we have just about one minute left or so, but I've been pondering the idea recently that the evangelism of the future is going to be the de- the demonstration of love in the church community. And, and this really is a great opportunity for this. Oh, 100%. Um, I actually was just looking at some statistics from Gen Z and the way that they want to, the way that they're impressed by Christians is never by like Billy Graham would not, would not make it here. This is not a generation that wants to be talked to about Christianity. Mm -hmm. They want to see it. So they, this is a generation that if you love the immigrant, if you love the poor, if you are doing actively doing those kind of ministries out of your churches, that's what they're going to come for. They, they love that stuff. Just like you're talking about with the cars, right? They want the cars that, um, uh, that you can plug in. They, they want (laughs) ministries that, you know, they're interested in, in the brokenness of the world and, and how to help it. And so that's, what's um, a huge light to them. Uh, Well, unfortunately we have to leave it right there. We're out of time. Could have chatted for another couple hours with you this morning. (laughs) Thanks for just the way you covered all of this and bringing a bit of hope and, and help into some of the troubled headlines of the day. We do see that Christians will persist. Will we not? Mm Mm-hmm. 100%. I love it. Have a great morning, Sarah. All right. You as well. We'll step away for just a minute, come back for some bottom-of-the-hour conversation on Acts chapter 14, part of what we're covering together as the Faith Radio team with all of you as well, and preview what's coming up in the second half of this hour on the 14th of February. Fit as a fiddle, ready for love. I can jump over the moon of above. Fit as a fiddle and ready for love. Papro, I suspect we are going to get quite a few love songs like this from deep in the music archive bank this morning as it is Valentine's Day. You as the master music mixer, boy, can you dig some stuff out. I did. I love that song from Singing in the Rain. So <laughs> I do love it, too. Go. Hey, we're chatting about uh, Acts chapter 14, right? Is that where we are as part of the Acts yeah. Bible Study, Paul? Because we're exactly. doing this as part of the Faith Radio team and with all of our listeners. Right. We're asking you to join us in reading through a chapter a day through the book of Acts during February. Today is the 14th. So we're looking at the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. You can learn more about all this. Uh, We have podcasts and such up that helps bring this to life here. As a matter of fact, I'll be on tomorrow's podcast for Acts 15. I will not miss it. Yeah. 
Anyway, uh, you can find that at MyFaithRadio.com. I love it. Well, in Acts chapter 14, we see this fun story where uh, Paul and Barnabas are out doing ministry in the city of Lystra, and they heal a lame man. And in chapter 11, it says, When the crowd saw that Paul had done this, they shouted in their language, The gods have come down to us in human form. And Barnabas, they called Zeus. Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. They brought these sacrifices. And, of course, Paul and Barnabas, they, they tore their clothes. They said, Give me a break. We are not gods in human form. But it it did... As I was reading through this, I thought there was this authentic demonstration of kingdom power. And Mm -hmm. when that happens, people do often get confused with the person who is the vehicle of God's power as being a God themselves. I mean, you and I have talked many times over the years about the personality cults that we can get Mm -hmm. into to just be careful and mindful that we want to appreciate the charismatic speakers of the day, the people through whom God uh, moves, but never to confuse or give our allegiance to those people versus giving our allegiance to the God of heaven. That's one aspect. The other is the flip side is... Oftentimes, people, they're trying to interpret things within the context of what they have. They had no context apart from the Zeus and that whole Greek-Roman pantheon. And, of course, if you go on from there... There are some people who are opposed to Paul and Barnabas who used this opportunity to cause trouble for him. Yeah, and you so. bring up a really good point because the religious milieu of the day, we're getting into more and more of a religious melting pot oh, in yeah. our country. Definitely. Again, religious pluralism is one of the key conversations we were talking about environment and climate among young people these days. Another key one is mm-hmm. religious pluralism because they now, unlike you and me perhaps growing up, they know a lot of people of different faiths. And so to interpret expressions of power in the midst of a pretty significant religious stew that's going on in our country, we're going to need even some of those demonstrations of power within Christendom to then be able to explain that God really is real. Exactly, because you can either go syncretism, which is a problem, but also, again, you're right. A lot of these kids, because of the lack of biblical knowledge that they okay, the lack of biblical knowledge within them, they don't have the context to interpret a lot of this very well. So, yeah. Indeed. We are in Acts chapter 14 this morning as part of the Faith Radio team. You can go to MyFaithRadio.com and join us as part of that study, and we'll keep doing that daily, consistent with the date. Up next, we've got Dan Bennett joining us. We're going to talk about some of the, the big news items, including what's going on in Ukraine, as well as the trucker convoys worldwide. about 35 minutes past the top of the hour here on the 14th of February. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge, who is taking an extended weekend at her family cabin. She'll be back in this host chair tomorrow morning. Joined at this time by regular contributor to the show, Daniel Bennett, who is a political scientist from John Brown University to talk about some of the major headlines of the morning. Good morning, John. Or Daniel, sorry. <laughs> have John Brown in my head, yes. <laughs> That's fine. Good morning. So great to chat with you. I know as I've been following a little bit of the Ukraine story, and, and it seems to be changing almost moment by moment, both what uh, some uh, of the rumors are coming from the border there with Ukraine and Russia, as well as our response as a country and even the global response. So take us into some of the most recent developments. Yeah, you know, it does seem to be changing pretty regularly. I read this uh, piece in the New York Times, uh, I think it was just yesterday, about how the Biden administration has taken a much more aggressive stance on declassifying certain intelligence and releasing that as a strategy to uh, disrupt the uh, Russian regime's plans. Now, how, why this would work is, uh, you know, we usually don't just declassify and, and publicize the intelligence that we gather for a variety of reasons. 
but by basically sharing anything that we're learning about the the, the military's plans, including uh, you know, just how serious the plans are, maybe even dissatisfaction within the Russian troops about the about the about Putin's uh, plans in Ukraine. It could be disrupting uh, the situation there. It could be giving uh, Vladimir Putin some pause about actually uh, going through with whatever is going through his mind, giving diplomacy another chance. Uh, but, you know, all other indications suggest that this this could be happening imminently. And what do we see as the reason why these events are happening right now? I know that when when you watch the supposed news, and I really do mean supposed news, and you can watch one channel and get one take and another channel and you get another take, some people are suggesting that there seems to be some perceived weakness in the United States and the response thus far, and maybe even Afghanistan and what happened in that country five, six months ago has made an impact on how global leaders are determining some of their next moves. So do you see some of the similar kinds of analysis as to why maybe now Putin is deciding to to maybe go after Ukraine? So I think uh, that could be part of it. Um, I think it takes a long time to mobilize something like this. So I don't know if it was entirely in response to the debacle in Afghanistan. But, uh, you know, as I, was, I teach a class in international relations this semester, and we were just talking about the complexities that go into, uh, you know, different uh, leaders' decision making. And I think uh, the perspective that I think is most uh, compelling in, in explaining why Putin is doing what he's doing now is to continue to sow discord around the world. Uh, he is certainly, there's a strategic value in uh, capturing uh, at least portions of Ukraine or maybe even the entirety of the country. But the larger goal for Putin, and this goes back to his days working in the KGB during the Cold War, is to show that Western democratic values just don't work. And by highlighting fissures within the West, uh, if the United States is pressuring its European allies to be tougher in, in Russian aggression against Ukraine, and the European allies don't do that for a variety of economic reasons tied to Russian or tied to their dependence on Russian uh, oil, for example, I think that's a benefit for Putin. Um, so it's not just Ukraine that's that's at issue right now. I think it's Putin's entire strategy for destabilization uh, in the West. Hmm, that's fascinating. It seems like Vladimir Putin has been president of that country since the 1800s. He's been, he's been around <laughs> forever. And, and people are saying that really maybe what's motivating him is he has been around long enough to remember the, the fullness of what was USSR, how we referenced it back in the 1980s before the fall. Are we seeing him wanting to try to bring back the USSR or is it just a matter of destabilization like you're saying? Yeah, I, I don't think we're. I don't think his end game is to, you know, restore the Russian or the Soviet uh, empire necessarily. I do think that there is, you know, some some evidence that, uh, you know, he believes Ukraine, you know, has a place in Russia. There's certainly cultural differences with with certain parts uh, of Ukraine and Russia uh, historically, um, but I think it really goes back to. Uh, you know, the, the people in Russia have been generally uh, dissatisfied by authoritarianism. There's been rises in uh, anti-Putin protests in the last few years. But at the same time, if he can then show, look, all this democracy and all these Western things that you think are so important, uh, they don't work any better either. That just furthers a sense of nihilism in, in, in Russia about, well, nothing works. So I guess we might as well go with Putin, who, you know, I guess the life is OK. 
Chatting with Daniel Bennett this morning, he's a political scientist from John Brown University and talking about some of the headlines globally. One a little bit closer to home here, Daniel, has to do with the trucker convoys that cropped up first in Canada. We see some potential rumblings happening in the United States. Now it's happening in France. I've seen New Zealand as well. This is where truckers are gathering to protest some of the governmental policy around different forms of mandates. I know I have a friend of mine who lives right up in Canada. I was talking with him last night a bit. He was at one of the convoys as well. It looks like it did get dispersed or at least moved. Um, some got dispersed, some got moved. What are we seeing in some of the recent developments here? Yeah, so I think a uh, couple of perspectives on this. Obviously, if you support the convoy, this is just great evidence of the the effectiveness of mobilization uh, for average people to, uh, if not change policy, certainly uh, make it difficult for government to enact policy without any repercussions. Uh, and to do so in a fairly cost uh, effective and, and cheap way. I mean, they're raising money to support themselves while they're on the road, obviously, but this doesn't take a lot of logistics to coordinate all this. Um, and that also shows the power of social media in, in, in organizing these types of things. If you're opposing these convoys, you look at the economic damage that you're seeing uh, in some of the city centers, especially Ottawa, where small businesses and people's lives are being disrupted. Um, similarly to the concerns over the, the protests that we saw in the summer of 2020, uh, with uh, the racial justice protests in the United States, a lot of small businesses and others' uh, situations were completely upended um, during those protests. So I think it really depends how you view these protests are going to depend largely on how you view the rest of uh, politics and current events. Yeah, indeed. It does seem like the momentum is heading a certain direction, not just in our country and up in Canada, but globally as well. And I don't know if you watched any of the Super Bowl yesterday, but I was struck as I was driving in this morning by the fact that we just watched an event with some 70,000 people, very few of whom, if any, were wearing masks yeah. at this event. Right. And so there does seem to be some cultural momentum. It, it seems like independent of, of the convoy continuing or, or not, that uh, we're going to yeah. see maybe some continued decrease in some of these mandates. Yeah, certainly. I think the mask, I, I saw several people yet last night comment saying it was a great game, but it also showed just the end of mask mandates. Uh, and I think people are just generally, you know, tired of, of those, especially in, in schools with, with their kids. Um, you know, notice that that doesn't have anything to do with the vaccine issue, which is, I think, largely what, what initially drove the, the convoy up in Canada. And so that's largely a different uh, different issue. But I think you're right. Just uh, <laughs> if nothing else, I think the Super Bowl last night showed that elected officials are very, very they've got to be really close to just saying, look, we, we just got to be done with masks. And if, if you want to, you can. Hmm. Yeah, and, and of course, elected officials are, are subject to the latest uh, finger in the wind, as it were, like the finger put it up yep. in the wind to see what's happening. And we did see quite a few of what would be considered, I suppose, blue states in this yep. last week. They went ahead and dropped their mask mandate as well. Right. Yeah. So I think that's indicative of who knows if it's polling. Maybe it's uh, just a recognition that, look, we're almost two years in. People, I think, who have gotten vaccinated are are vaccinated already. Um, and so if it's the question really becomes how much longer and if there's not a good reasoned answer to that question, then you should probably just end the policy. Chatting with Daniel Bennett this morning, John Brown University. He is a professor of political science there. Dan, when we come back after a short break, we're going to switch the topic to the continued changes that we're experiencing in terms of our accommodations for COVID. And one of those changes is that we're coming to an end of some of the online services and people are starting mm -hmm. to gather back together as congregations in a body of believers. So more to come. Stay with us on Mornings with Carmen.
Welcome back to the show. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge. We're talking with Daniel Bennett this morning. He is a political scientist uh, professor from John Brown University about some of the headlines that we are noting in the news. And Daniel, there has been some continued changes in the way Christians are gathering. And clearly, there has been the online service medium for quite some time, even pre-COVID, as churches began to develop main campuses and spun off satellite churches and were streaming people in and you could catch services live that uh, sort of went on steroids during the COVID time. But uh, we are seeing a bit of a return to people coming back to the congregation. What are you noticing here? Right. So I think this this conversation nationally was really uh, got, got a lot more interest after an article by Tish Harrison Warren, uh, New York Times. She's an Anglican writer and uh, just thoughtful person in general. And she had a pretty provocative article a couple weeks ago where she said that online services basically need to be done uh, during the, at least in response to COVID. And, you know, for those of, you know, our list, for, for your listeners who remember the earliest days of the pandemic, many of your churches probably uh, went pivoted to a remote option. I know our church did where I'm, I go to a PCA congregation, uh, about 140 people. And, you know, we had a we had to set up online option. We had to set up a camera. We had to invest in some technology to make sure that we could stream it to, you know, a, a large amount of people uh, re- reliably. Um, but we ended up coming back in person a few months later and, and maintaining the online option, which we do today. But Warren's argument is if we get too comfortable with church as an online platform, we risk losing some of the uniqueness that comes with being embodied uh, in the body of Christ. Uh, and, and that raised some concerns in, in, among those with uh, disabilities and other issues that precluded them from going to church in person. Um, so I think there's definitely still a good reason to keep online church as an option, but to, but to do so, if you're considering it, you know, to do so pretty uh, with, with a lot of scrutiny as to why you're doing it. Yeah, well, they know we're Christians by our love, right, Daniel? I mean, that's right. that's part of how we bear witness in this world. And, and I think that it, it's very difficult to really demonstrate the kind of relational love that shines that kingdom light into the world if we're always separate from one another. And again, completely understand the accommodations needing to be made for COVID and people getting sick. And yet it, it is that relational life together more than anything else that does shine God's light in the world. It's so different when believers are treating one another in love. And I think some of the concerns uh, in response to Warren's uh, article, especially from folks who had uh, been been suffering from disabilities that precluded them from attending church in the past, was the the thought that well we we don't feel connected to the body like we've we've you know maybe we're not being visited by people uh, in the congregation maybe we're not connecting with the congregation and so. I think it, it shows an opportunity for churches too to kind of do some self-reflection as we're coming out of this season, and say, okay, if we're going to be, you know, certainly maintaining this as an option, but how else can we minister to people in our congregation who are unable to be here in person? Um, how can we visit them? How can we take meals to them? How can we take the church to them and make sure that they are feeling the love that comes with being in the body of Christ? Yeah, and that really does, as we talked about, and we've talked about a couple times now this morning. It, it does bear witness to a different kind of. Kingdom. And then I think as we talk about an article you and I read for this morning from firstthings.com, uh, the three worlds of evangelicalism written by Aaron Wren, he's talking a bit about uh, the fact that Christianity has gone through a pretty tremendous shift in terms of public perception over these last, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 years or so, where pre-1994, 
there is a, a positive view, generally speaking, about Christianity. And then for about 20 years, 1994 to 2014, more of a neutral view and neither positive nor negative. And in these last maybe eight or so years, there has been become increasingly a negative view of Christianity. So that kind of gives us the outline or the framework for the conversation. But there's a lot of details in this, Daniel. Yeah, I really thought this essay was was super interesting. I don't agree with I don't agree with everything that he wrote, especially in terms of the response to how we should should uh, you know respond to these movements or these periods of, of uh, or the three worlds, so to speak. But I thought that framework was super helpful to think about prior to and he he bases it on dates for a number of reasons. But you know, say prior to 1994. Culture in the United States was largely favorable towards Christianity. Most people had a general understanding of Christianity, even if they weren't particularly uh, prone to identify as Christians in the first place. They were just they knew what Christianity was and they were generally happy to be identified as a Christian country, largely speaking. Uh, For about two decades in the middle there, though, it was kind of Christianity was seen more as like a neutral a party in a larger pluralistic system to say, sure, Christianity's fine. So is Islam. So is Judaism. Let's just all kind of make this pluralism work. And then after 2014 and a lot of the cases involving same-sex marriage and, and LGBT or LGBTQ rights and these, these types of things, uh, the larger culture became to be a bit more uh, critical of Christianity uh, and more negative, as Ren would characterize it. And I think the most helpful thing about the essay is he says the way in which Christians have engaged and participated in culture varies during those different worlds. And so the strategy for engagement, say, in the positive world doesn't necessarily work in the negative world. And so I think that's where the real interesting thoughts and questions come is how do we respond to these cultures when they are responding to us very, very differently. Well, and I thought one of the more fascinating things about this article, too, was that when you go back into the late 1970s, that primarily evangelicals of that time were voting on the Democratic side of the political aisle. They were voting for Jimmy Carter at that time. And what a tremendous shift that began to happen underneath the religious right and Jerry Falwell in particular. But Daniel, I don't know how much of this even related to when Roe versus Wade became the law of the land. I remember as a kid sitting in my Catholic elementary school and we did a mock debate between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. Some of the students did. And abortion was really the front and center part of that conversation. Did that really drive a shift from evangelicals voting or tending to vote Democratic to evangelicals now voting more Republican? Were there other things going on back then? It seems so long ago. And yet that that's pretty recent in terms of history. Right. And I'm writing a chapter in my upcoming book that, that deals with, with this question, basically, how did we get to where we are today? And essentially, there's just different perspectives on what drove evangelical political engagement. Um, I tend to be convinced or at least favorable to the idea that abortion was a significant moment. Uh, you know, even if not every single evangelical was super passionate about the issue, they were at least concerned enough to be motivated to vote in a certain way. Um, but there's other ideas that explain evangelical engagement shifting over the years uh, from, uh, you know, anti-communist Cold War sentiment. Uh, the, the Reagan administration was really active in courting evangelical voices uh, in his election, not necessarily just because of abortion, but because of other things as well. Um and so you can read different historians work on this and your listeners can check those things out. Books by, um, you know, I certainly the, the names in the news recently, Kristen Cobes Dumay, Jamar Tisby, Randall Balmer, they all have uh, Kevin Cruz. They all have different perspectives on what drove evangelical political engagement. But I think abortion has to be at the top of the list. Yeah.
And Danny, I'm glad you brought up your book as well. Tell us a little bit about the book that you're writing, what's in it, uh, what we can expect to see if we read it. Yeah, so it's it's really a political scientist's uh, explanation and take on where we are uh, as Christians in our political engagement today, acknowledging challenges that we do face while downplaying some of the more hyperbolic challenges that we sometimes seem to be facing. Uh, again, acknowledging that there are real challenges, but then also saying that there are some real opportunities that we have in this moment, maybe to adopt uh, Ren's terminology of living in a negative world. Uh, to say, okay, well, maybe we're not the dominant cultural actor anymore. How can we still attempt to shape the environment around us to advance the kingdom? And I draw on my experience as a political scientist, drawing on research, but then also as a Christian, right? Just kind of blending those observations to try to hopefully give an encouraging and uh, hopefully realistic uh, view of these of these questions. As you studied it, Daniel, we just got a couple minutes left here. If you can fast forward into your own personal time machine, and let's say it's 10 years or 20 years down the road, what, what does the shape of religion and its intersection with politics, what does it look like? Because it really has changed and it continues to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think Ryan Burge, who's who's a political scientist at Eastern Illinois University, he's written a lot about these questions about what the future holds. I tend to be pretty convinced that the the rise of the nuns, those who don't identify with any particular religion, maybe they're not atheist or agnostic, they might just be spiritual, but not religious at all, or nothing in particular. I think those are going to continue to increase as demand for traditional religion continues to decrease, right? We have different ways of connecting with each other that doesn't involve going to church anymore. Uh, so, you know, the, the demand for religion might continue to decrease, but that will give churches maybe a uh, continued uh, position to influence their communities around them. Um, the people who remain in church are maybe going to be largely more committed to their faith traditions. Uh, These aren't going to be the passive bystanders because those folks may just decide not to continue on. Um, But the folks who continue might be more motivated and excited about trying to reach the communities around them. So I have no idea what the future holds as a political scientist. I've given up trying to predict the future. Um, But, uh, you know, it's it's certainly one thing to be concerned about, but also maybe kind of excited about. Yeah, great stuff, Daniel. Thanks so much for taking us into these headlines. If you want to catch more of Daniel's work, you can go to danielbennett.substack.com. That's danielbennett.substack.com. He has the blog Uneasy. Citizen Daniel, thanks again. Have a great rest of the morning. Thank you. Step away for just a moment and come back, preview what's coming up on Hour 2 here on February 14th on Mornings with Carmen. Well, I love that Valentine's Day has fallen on a Monday this year because that means regular guest and relationships expert Linda Mintel will be joining us here on Mornings Without Carmen. We are going to, after a short break for the top of the hour and some news, we'll talk a bit about some Valentine's Day practices and how we can enter in to this day. I do recognize as well that it's a day of grief, not just love for many people who have experienced the loss of a loved one. And it's a great opportunity to maybe just reflect on so with, with gratefulness, some of the beautiful parts of what is a long journey often together. So stay with us after a short top of the hour break. We'll be joined by Linda Mintel and talk all things Valentine's Day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.